I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending April 3rd. In this episode, it was 1965, and the fledgling semiconductor industry had ground to a halt. This week, we've got the story about how Andy Grove and Steve Hofstein committed a probably illegal act that jump-started literally the entire industry, getting it moving along the path toward making hundreds of billions of dollars. This week, a freewheeling interview with industry legend Steve Hofstein. It's 2020 and we have an election going on. The process of casting a ballot was already threatened by hackers, foreign propaganda, and voter suppression. And now we have a pandemic that makes it treacherous to open a polling station. The electronics industry has been endlessly innovative in developing new technologies to bail us out of one difficulty after another. Can we rely on technology to do it again? Keep listening. Roughly half the stories we all tell these days are informed by the novel coronavirus. We've been telling stories about the difficulties that the spread of the epidemic has caused in business and in society at large, and we've also been telling stories about the response to those difficulties. We've seen some world leaders respond quickly and decisively, leaders who based their decisions on the best science available and who then competently marshaled their region's resources. The world has recognized Taiwan and South Korea as good examples of effective responses. There are others. And then we have UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson dithering until he himself gets infected. And we have US President Donald Trump now heading into his fourth month of flailing ineffectually during the pandemic. Good leadership and good examples of good leadership matter. We all need leaders at all levels to set goals and set expectations but no less to inspire confidence. No plan can be successful without the buy-in of the people implementing it. This week, EE Times International Correspondent Junko Yoshida wrote a story praising Lieutenant General Todd Seminite, who leads the Army Corps of Engineers, for a masterful presentation explaining how the Corps intends to help rapidly repurpose sites that are non-medical as intensive care units, or ICUs. He set goals and expectations and inspired us with his competence and confidence. Here he is. First of all, the Corps of Engineers obviously works for DOD and anything we need to do there. But we also here are actually representing FEMA under direct mission assignments that states send to FEMA and then send, send back down to me for taskers. This is an unbelievably complicated problem, and there's no way we're going to be able to do this with a complicated solution. We need something super simple. So our concept here is a standard design. This is the approved design that's already been through HHS, briefed to members of the White House, and through FEMA. What we want to do is we want to go into existing facilities primarily, places that are out there, and I'm mainly going to talk and make it simple, hotels, college dormitories, and perhaps large spaces. For the same reason that we highlighted Lieutenant General Seminite's address, we wanted to share a message recorded by the Chief Executive Officer of British-based distributor Electrocomponents. What you hear next is part of an address that Electrocomponents CEO Lindsley Ruth shared not only with employees, but also with the world at large. It is now up to all of us to perform. And I ask you one question, one question and one question only. Are you 
personally willing to make it happen. Because the real power in this company is you. It is our people. Those of you who make amazing happen every single day. To those of you who want to make amazing happen, I ask you to do one thing, and that is not to give up and hide, but to rise up and fight. You can fight, flight, or freeze. The choice is yours. My choice is clear. I am going to fight, and I'm going to fight every day of the week to make sure you are safe and healthy, number one, to make sure we're doing the right things, and to make sure that we are well positioning ourselves to be at the top of the mountain when the sun rises again. And I am by no means a quitter, and I believe wholeheartedly in the women and men in this company. Together, I know we can do remarkable things. Steve Hofstein is one of the legends of the semiconductor industry. Hofstein and Fred Hyman built the earliest experimental metal oxide semiconductor IC ever fabricated that worked. It was a 16-transistor circuit the two created at RCA in 1962. Hofstein and Hyman were experts in silicon electronics at a time when the number of silicon experts in existence was in the low double digits. A few weeks back, I got an email from Hofstein looking for an article from EE Times called MOSFETs, An Impossible Quest. It was written by George Rotsky, he told me, and it was published sometime in the 1970s. EE Times was founded in 1972. That was 25 years before anything was archived electronically, let alone everything. What I'm trying to get at is, we've got nothing in our online archives from the 80s and early 90s, let alone anything from the 70s. One thing I know about the web, though, you never know what you're going to find until you look. And, odds bodkins, somebody else had posted that very article elsewhere online. I read it. It was a great story, and I was delighted when Hofstein agreed to get on the phone and tell it to us in his own words. So, Steve, I want you to set this up for us. Uh, Where were you working? Um, And uh, we had discussed previously how many people were in the the field uh, researching silicon in general. What was the situation back in uh, back in the early '60s, and and, uh, and and what what were you trying to solve? Okay, the, I came to work at RCA in 1959, but really went into the device area in 1960. And at mm-hmm. the time, I would imagine that there were no more than I would say a dozen people really actively into silicon, and perhaps another 20 peripherally looking at it. Because at the time it was a very difficult material to work with, there were no, there was no equipment available. I mean, mm. it was a very refractory, high temperature material. It required all all the kinds of things that you see in silicon development and research had yet to be put together. So part of the research problem was you you not only had to work with the figure out what was wrong with the material and how to use it, you had to build all the equipment you needed in order to make something to even test. So there we were building our little diffusion furnaces and uh, out of the little carbon rods and fire brick and beginning the process of doing masking and photo resistance, so on and so forth. The things that go into making experimental devices. Mm-hmm. And uh, we present, we being Fred Hyman and myself the, and Carl Zeininger, the RCA team presented our results at the electron devices meeting uh, in 1962, I believe it was. 
And uh, it was the first device that actually worked. You got to understand just a little bit quick history. Device invented in 1928 by Julius Lilienfeld, who had the idea of controlling material. I don't know if you use the term semiconductor, and he got a patent on it, which has now been published over in many articles. Uh, Mm. The problem was that he chose a material called copper sulfide, which was used in making photocells. He thought that would probably have an effect, and it did not because of something he didn't understand at the time, which is called surface states. Oddly enough, if he had chosen cadmium sulfide instead of copper sulfide, he would have had a working thin film transistor. That's how they make them to today. They're all used in a liquid crystal display. We would have had transistors in 1928 if he had used the other material. That's how close he came to it. Wow. We, we were almost there. So in any event, the device kind of foundered. In the late 50s, uh, oh, actually in the early 50s, Shockley poked around with it, but there was no control. He could get nothing in terms of silicon because of the surface state problem. And so they went on to do, uh, he went on to do something called the unipolar transistor, which was a junction form of what would later become the MOS transistor. In other words, he said, well, if the problem is with the interface, what I'll do is simply I'll make the gate a diffused region an actual junction, so there will be no interface. The whole device is buried in silicon. And he got it to work, but the problem with it was that it was... You see, Bell Laboratories was a very unique place, and that's where Bill was at the time. In Bell Laboratories, you had a great research center, but it was very different from RCA. At RCA, in the research labs, the general, that was General Sarnoff, had decreed that if you thought... that They were riding high in color television, a great success... If you had something which you thought might ultimately be useful, work on it, no matter what the field was. We were doing nuclear magnetic resonance that ultimately ended up being MRI. Uh, that's mm. how broad it was, including, or in other words, we had a broad, broad spectrum of research. Bell Labs was extremely tightly focused. No matter how esoteric their research, no matter how basic it was, they, every scientist knew exactly where it would fit in the Bell system. If there was no fit in the Bell system in terms of communications, it was not worked on. The, the, the fellow, I guess, who gets the credit for first trying to make this device in silicon is Barty Atala and DeWarren Kong. They were two, two engineers up at Bell Laboratories. Uh, mm-hmm. Kong worked for Atala. And he came up with the idea of taking Lilienfeld's device and porting it over to silicon using, you know, silicon dioxide as, grown silicon dioxide as the insulating material. And he built a device that actually had an effect. I mean, he got some kind of amplification, and he demonstrated it and wrote an early paper on it. But it didn't work very well, and Bell decided that it would never be usable in terms of communications. It was too slow, that, and, and they had no interest in integrated circuits. They were, they were involved, remember, in communications only. Not, not right. computers. And so uh, Atala gave up work on it and it kind of languished. Uh, that brings us to the early 60s. RCA was trying to make integrated, what they called integrated logic nets. The term integrated circuit really wasn't very popular at that time. wasn't well known. Mm. They were called integrated logic nets. Okay. And uh, RCA had gotten a contract from the Air Force. And by the way, the work on the MOS that we did and ultimately made the device was actually supported by the Air Force. And that, that contract and that those reports are online. I can send a copy to you, you can, or a link, and you can get it. In any event, um, they were trying to make the device in the unipolar fashion. In other words, they would take a stick of silicon 
and they literally were grinding channels in it with hacksaw blades. This is for real. And doing things that I, they were they were actually on this is not a joke, they were using modified hacksaw blades to grind little channels in a stick of silicon and try and build a stick of devices which they could then put on top of a ceramic and somehow link up together. Mm. Then Tom Stanley had called me in his office and as the conversation goes, Ed said, Why don't I take a look at the MOS transistor? And I said, Well, what's the problem? He said, Well, there is an effect. It's been proven up at Bell Labs. Bart and Natal have built a device and got some kind of amplification. And here at the laboratories, Carl Zeininger duplicated that. He took a bar of silicon, grew some oxide, put a gold dot on it, and was able to show some kind of amplification. But the, the surface states are a killer. Nobody's been able to resolve it. And mm-hmm. right now, everyone thinks that it's a problem with cleaning the silicon before you oxidize it. So why didn't you try it? I said, well, why isn't anyone else doing this work? And he kind of looked at me and said, you got to understand something. Anybody who has tried to get this device to work has failed. It's killed their careers. He said, Steve, he said, you don't have any career to kill. <laughs> he said, what? what, what, what? <laughs> that's, that's exactly how we put it. You don't have oddly encouraging, right? <laughs> yes, made me feel real good at the time, I have to tell you. <laughs> so I, I went to work on the device. And uh, the secret turned out to be, call it a secret. As in everything looking backwards, it's just astonishing how, in retrospect, something which may have taken a long time to develop, in retrospect, is very simple. The wheel. Mm. You know, you look at the wheel today, and it's so trivial, and it's so obvious, and yet there was a time in history when it didn't exist. Right. And somebody had to think of it, of course, when they look back on it, it's, it's obvious. But then again, all good inventions always look obvious when you look back on them. And what we tried at the time was the following. I said, look, in the past, all kinds of material defects have been annealed out. When you're working metal, for example, you pound a sword into existence, you, you anneal it. I mean, that goes back thousands of years. You heat it up in a fire and you plunge it into water and so on. Anything mm-hmm. that anneals and softens metal will get rid of defects. I said, how about we try just to anneal it? And the reason I thought about it was I said, it just seemed inconceivable that no matter what surface treatment we tried, no matter how we tried to clean it, we always got the same result. There were no differences. So I said, even if the cleaning techniques just aren't working, they can't be the ones that are responsible because if they were, each cleaning technique would give us a different result and we could do something. But we always come up with exactly the same result. And what do you think of that? Well, obviously the cleaning is not having an effect. So we tried the opposite. We said, let's work on it after it's been grown. That's being the oxide. So we Mm -hmm. oxidized the silicon and we annealed it in hydrogen at about 1,100 degrees, and I'll be darned, the surface states went away. And so we were able to create not just an effect, we actually built a device that you could cut off, turn on, and make a switch out of. In other words, it actually worked. And yeah. that, was, that was what we, we put together. A, the, first, the first IC that was ever built, Fred and I put together, was 16 transistors, and that's what you saw on the cover of the uh, IEEE proceedings and the paper that we presented uh, at the device research conference, the electron devices meeting in Washington. And uh, things took off after that. The problem was that <laughs> the problem was the devices weren't stable. I chuckled because about three months after we had the device, it was so exciting that the general himself, General Sarnoff, came down to the laboratories to see a demonstration. Mm-hmm. And they marched him into my little laboratory office and set the device up on a, uh, you had a oscilloscope which could would actually measure transistor curves. Do you remember those, Brian? Yeah. No, well, not before my time. 
But anyway, I know they existed. You, yeah, you know, you, you, get, you get a picture on the screen which showed for each gate voltage. You know what the what the the current versus drain voltage was. They were called transistor transfer characteristics, and then mm-hmm. we used small transistors. In any event, we plugged in a transistor, and there were the curves on the screen, and everyone's murmuring, and the general is nodding very happily, and then suddenly he notices the curves are slowly collapsing, and he says, "Why are the curves collapsing?" And what somebody said, General, that's why we're not selling the device right now. <laughs> uh, he was, it, it worked, but the problem was it wasn't stable. So, so I've was, never met, I've never met Sarnoff. Um, it was, uh, was, was this a scary thing to have? No, he was General wrong. Sarnoff in your office saying, your thing doesn't work anymore. <laughs> yes, as you mentioned, I still had a small knot in my stomach, but you know, the knot in my stomach was when the things were collapsing, all my bosses, I mean, my boss, his boss, his boss's boss, all turned to look at me. So, of course, the general turned to look at me, and I felt if there was a hole in the floor at that time, it'd be so appreciated. I could just sort of sink into it and disappear. <laughs> But uh, he was a remarkably genial man, by the way. Uh, I met him a oh. couple of times, oddly enough. Uh, once once at that time, of course, when he saw the device, about two years later, I got the Sarnoff Award. And so I was up in New York at, in the Waldorf Astoria. I did this brief story. You can edit this out, but it's worth telling. Uh, they had a special, I guess you would call, celebratory dinner for, for Sarnoff, celebrating 60 years in electronics. And it was hosted by Bill Paley of CBS, which was very gracious because at the time, CBS was an arch rival of RCA in terms of television. And as a winner of a Sarnoff Award, I was invited. It was a black tie affair, you know, and and I'm a young kid. And this, in terms of laboratories, only the top executives have been invited. But then, you know, it went to anyone who had gotten a Sarnoff medal. So anyway, Mm. I'm sitting up in the balcony. Uh, and it's a very, very lovely thing. And I'm sitting at a little table and there's a table behind me. So I'm looking at the seating arrangement to see, you know, who's there. And it turns out the woman sitting directly behind me is someone named Florence Chadwick. And I thought the name is awfully familiar. And I realized, yeah, Florence Chadwick swam the English Channel. Can't be. I mean, what relevance does that have to General Sarnoff? So I turned around and introduced myself and this charming woman confirmed indeed she was Florence Chadwick who had swum the English Channel, first woman to do so. And I said, I'm kind of curious. You know, I'm here, and I explained why I was here. I work for the labs and so on. I said, I was kind of curious, you know, what, what's your relationship with the general? And she said, well, it's funny you should ask. She says, as you know, she said, the general has this beautiful townhouse in mid-Manhattan. And in the townhouse, she said, is an Olympic-sized swimming pool. But the problem is the general can't swim, and so he hired me as a swimming instructor. And I'm teaching him how to swim. So I thought to myself, you never know. Things are so interesting in this world. That's how I met Florence Chadwick. So the, the general did things in a big way. If you want to learn how to swim, hire Florence Chadwick. How can I say? Oh, my God. I live for stories like that. Thank you. Uh, so coming back to RCA Laboratories, you know, here we are. I'm working on a device. It's unstable. Well, word comes back that Fairchild has managed to stabilize the devices, but they can't get them to work. They still have a surface state problem. And they're beating their, they're trying to figure out what to do about surface states, and we cannot solve the instability problem. We just don't know. There's a very famous image. Have you seen the elephant picture? It's on the web. If not, I'm going to send it to you. But it was drawn by somebody on, in ter- at the time, we we're all struggling to find out what the instabilities were. 
it has all the people listed as the instabilities, and it shows each person looking at an elephant. Obviously, the fable about the blind man trying to understand what an elephant is, and one touches his trunk and says, oh, it's like a snake. Another one holding its legs says, no, it's like a tree. Well, they represented all of us engineers holding on one person saying, no, it's ions, another person saying, no, it's oxygen vacancies. So uh, here we are. We can make the devices, but they're unstable, so we can't sell them. Fairchild has stabilized the devices, but can't make them, so they can't sell them. And here is the problem. I get called into, not a problem. That's the, that's the situation. Now I get called into Bill Webster's office. And he sits me down. He says, Steve, he said, you know, you're going out to this new conference that you guys have organized in Las Vegas. He said, uh, I need to talk to you about something. And I said, sure, Bill, what? He said, well, I don't know if you're aware of it, but RCA used to make all of its, in fact, the laboratories was almost totally supported by licensee fees in terms of all of our licenses that we had out. But some years ago, Honeywell brought a lawsuit against us and said, you can't selectively choose people to divulge your technology to. It's too important, and if you divulge it to anyone, you got to divulge it to everybody. Oh, and they filed a, yeah, they filed a lawsuit, and the government came down on their side, and RCA basically had to open up all of its patents to everybody if they opened them up to anybody. Right, okay. So now we lost a big stream of revenue, but, you know, that, that's, that's something else. And the other people switched things around, and we took government contracts, and we, we passed that hurdle. But now here is the problem. <clears throat> if we tell Fairchild how we make the surface states go away, we are obligated to tell everybody. If Fairchild tells us something, they're not, but we are obligated to tell everyone we can't do that. And so uh, Bill looked at me and said, you know, when you're out in Las Vegas and you meet up with Andy, if Andy kind of looks at you and says, uh, gee, you got something to tell me, and you were to tell them how you do hydrogen annealing, we wouldn't object. As it will. <laughs> okay, now let's just back up a little bit. You're, you're introducing the the meeting that's coming up. Right. Uh, tell us about the uh, tell us about the meeting and where it was. Okay, the meeting was uh, as we mentioned previously. The idea originated in the cafeteria. Claire Thornton and I put it together. Claire took care of the IEEE. I decided to have it in Las Vegas because I'd always wanted to see Las Vegas. And when we published the notice of the meeting, we deliberately did not disclose the location because the last thing we wanted were people you know, trying to get into a conference simply because it was in Las Vegas. All it said was there's going to be a conference. You had a publisher, by the way. That was a regulation. Uh, the only people that were allowed to come were people who were active workers in the field. And so my job was to locate all of the people who had presented any paper on silicon, invite them to submit an abstract on what they would present, and then we went through the abstracts, and those people that had something useful were the ones selected. We were down to about 40 people. As a journalist, I'm deeply wounded by this, Steve. Why? <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. Let the meeting go. I love it. Uh, yes, you and I do have to get together. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we go out to the conference, and uh, the first morning, it's just generally introductory, and we all decide we're going to take a break for lunch. We can take a two-hour lunch and all go out to the swimming pool. So here we are out in the swimming pool, all of us bobbling around in the water. It's, it's November 5th. It's a little cool, but the swimming pool is heated. And Andy Grove is kind of looking at me, and he's about 10 or 15 feet away, and I'm kind of looking at him. So slowly we start bopping towards each other. And you have to have this image in your mind, all these useless engineers in the pool hopping up <laughs> and down, and Andy and I are bopping towards each other. And finally, we get to within about a foot or two. And I say, Andy, how are you? Andy says, Steve, how are you? 
and uh, kind of look at him and say, uh, mm, do you have something to say to me? He said, that's funny. I was going to ask you, do you have something to say to me? So now people are looking at us and trying to listen in. And we kind of get very close because we really have to keep just between the two of us. And I said, Andy, do you want to go first? He said, no, you go first. And I said, it's hydrogen and the only 1100 degrees. And he smiled and kind of shook his head. And he looked at me and he said, sodium. And that was the exchange. Now, everyone is staring at us and trying to hear what we're saying. So I look around and I look around very dramatically. I said, Andy, I have something really important to tell you. And he looks a little quizzical and he hops over. And now I hold him around. I lean over. And I put my lips close to his ear. And in a loud stage whisper, I say, Andy, right now I am peeing on you. <laughs> and all... And I, I expected a startle reaction, but he breaks out laughing and says, funny you should say that. I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. The warm spot in that pool may have dissipated, but the warm spot in my heart for Andy Grove goes on forever. <laughs> oh, my. You're never going to see this in the Intel history, are we? No, these are the things that get lost. And it, it's, I'm so delighted you called me because there's so much flavor. The times were wonderful. Harvey Nathanson, who had Westinghouse, in fact, Harvey's still around, brilliant guy. Uh, he did the MOS work and he worked on, he came up with the idea of actually making the gate of the MOS transistor suspended. He would eat the oxide out from underneath and it was like a little, if you put a voltage on, this little tiny microscopic gate would bend downward. And it was mm. like, how interesting was the world's smallest tuning fork? Except that this, <laughs> it's not a joke. It was, it, was only, the, it was only audible to insects. And I wasn't sure exactly what you would do with it. Well, wouldn't you know, it turned out that an array of those were one of the first methods used for, Texas Instrument used it for its projection television sets before we went over to liquid crystals. Wow. Because they found if you bent the gate, you could, in other words, if you, if you shined a light at it, and the mm -hmm. gate bent downward, the reflection didn't hit your eye, so it turned dark, and you could get a picture. So you never know how things work out. Steve and I had a long, rambling conversation, and he also told me how he invented a digital watch with a liquid crystal display in 1962. But the corporate office wasn't interested because, quote, RCA is in the electronics business, not the watch business. So we've got the picture of the engineers looking at an elephant that Hofstein referred to and a link to George Rotsky's original article on our website. They're on the podcast page. It's on eetimes.com behind the link that says radio. I worked with George Rotsky back in the 80s and early 90s during my first stint with EE Times. He was a fine newsman and a gregarious fellow who loved digging up great stories about the electronics industry and putting them in print. We lost George in 2003, but we try to honor his memory by celebrating the stories of engineers and the other people who made the electronics industry what it is today. Do you have a good story to tell? Drop me a line. I'm at brian.santo at aspencore.com. My email link is on the podcast page too. Voting is the essence of a democracy. It's literally the whole point that we, as a people, have a right to vote, that we have a mechanism to govern ourselves, is a historically rare opportunity and an extraordinary and precious thing.
The integrity of the vote is therefore as fundamental as the right to vote itself. And lately, the integrity of the voting system in the United States has been under relentless attack, and something must be done about it. EE Times recently published a series of articles on the means of voting, the electronic systems used, the vulnerabilities of those systems, the methods of casting a ballot, and how to restore the integrity of the process. The package is what we call a special project, and the title of this one is Time is Running Out to Secure U.S. Elections. The anchor story in the package was written by Ann Thrift, who writes the EE Times blog called CloudWatch, in which she investigates cybersecurity issues. We've got Ann here to go over some of the key elements of her article, and later I'll be talking with George Leopold, who edited the special report package for us. So Anne, you've reported that many, if not most, electronic voting technologies in the U.S. have been hacked. And you've reported that the U.S. has set aside money to underwrite efforts to make the technology less vulnerable. Can you review how much was set aside? And then the question is, do we know where the money has been spent or if there have been any positive results? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I discovered that it was quite difficult to find out how much money has been allocated, where it's gone, how it's been spent. Um, the two figures that I did find, I think, are in the article. $380 million in federal funding in 2018, and then in 2020, another $425 million was allocated. But the problem is figuring out where it is, where it went, and what it's been used for. So we can't really answer that question. My sources said this was extremely difficult to uh, find out. We've known that our electronic voting systems have been vulnerable for a long time. Can you list some of the measures you dug up in your reporting for shoring up the voting system? The answers for how to protect election technology, um, cybersecurity-wise, aren't all that different from the solutions for protecting the industrial environment. Um, a lot of it's similar. You know, don't expose anything to the internet that doesn't have to be. Segment your networks. Um, protect sensitive data, don't use silly passwords, protect passwords. Um, a lot of this is very similar. Um, but one of the biggest problems is, is, is that there's, no, there's very little awareness and no budget for cybersecurity technology in many different states and, and the people that run the voting systems. This is still kind of a new idea. But the, basically, there's no budget. Um, these aren't independent companies that can figure out how to pay for it. We are so used to the solution to vulnerable technology being more technology. It seems counterintuitive that many of the recommendations involve paper. The people you interviewed, why are so many of them enamored of paper? The, the reason the paper is suggested over and over is because you can't hack it. It is not hackable. It is you know, it is probably the most secure thing there is, this, the most secure method of voting that there is, even if it's done by mail. Um, the other thing, major issue, and why it's important to have paper votes, is because it can be used, um, the paper ballots can be used to verify electronic, you know, machine votes. And it's especially recommended by many of the people I talk to to have voters do that. So it's like, yes, that's my vote. I voted for this. No, I didn't vote for that. Um, so the whole backup concept and the verification concept is extremely important with paper. 
You noted in your article that there are literally as many voting systems as there are states. Does it make sense to find the most tamper-proof system we can and then dictate that all states adopt it? Each of the 50 states has a different system in the sense of infrastructure and processes for voting. Um, as far as hardware and software goes, it's extremely variable. There are lots of different machines. There are different machines for different functions, and there are different types of technology used. So I could have written an entirely other article just on that. But there basically have been two different suggestions made. One is that the Election Assistance Commission, which conducts a voluntary testing and certification program for voting system hardware and software, should make that not voluntary. They should make it mandatory. And there's also been some federal uh, regulations that have been proposed for the oversight of election vendors. Um, The bottom line, though, is that it's up to the states to decide what they're going to do. So we heard Anne talking a little bit about the the, the uh, integrity of the technology, uh, but that's really not just the the issue. The integrity of the the entire voting system is at risk, um, and, and it's not just hacking. It's now uh, you know whether we can even staff a um, uh, an election. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. As as we were preparing the the, the election special uh, project, uh, COVID nineteen showed up with force, and it sort of has has changed changed the whole ball game, given mm-hmm. uh, much much greater immediacy to to this overall idea of election integrity. And uh, you know, the there are examples coming up now. Uh, we cited some about. Uh, uh, Elections that had to be been primary elections that had to be postponed in my home state of Wisconsin next mm-hmm. week, uh, uh, April seventh. There are several thousand people short on poll workers because people simply can't get out. Some some uh, precincts uh, they have no one to man the voting booths, so they're going to have to rely on paper balloting, which of course is the area that you focused on in in, in your part of the special project. Now. So the the question is, what's the government response going to be? And right now, uh, they've got about $400 million in the stimulus package that was passed in the last couple of days uh, for uh, uh, securing uh, the election infrastructure and trying to ensure the integrity of the 2020 presidential election vote. uh, Nancy Pelosi asked for uh, $4 billion. They got $400 million. But I think now they're going to you know, have to determine what states have the greatest needs uh, so that they can somehow get these uh, the rest of these primaries completed and then get uh, something up and running by, uh, by November so that we can have uh, you know, confidence in the presidential election. Yeah, well, let's hope it's, uh, you know, uh, let's hope it's allocated according to need. Um, you know, this this administration has not been um, known for uh, responding to need, but uh, to political expediency. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that that's much smaller allocation than was requested uh, is actually adequate and allocated correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that, so we've been talking about the integrity of the technology for at least 20 years, going back to 
at least the 2000 election and probably before that. Um, I think uh, white hat hackers have been proving that uh, most of our election machinery has been vulnerable for at least those two decades. And the answer, oddly enough, ordinarily the answer to a technological problem is more and better technology. And as you just brought up, with this, the answer seems to be less technology. It's going to paper and creating a paper trail. Um, and it's fascinating that um, the the answer for the integrity of the technology is also the answer to uh, what do we do when a disaster hits like the coronavirus epidemic? Yeah, well, you know, the technology is going to remain pervasive in, in, in the voting infrastructure, uh, but mm. uh, but I think that the short-term solution is decidedly analog, and that's that, that's paper ballots. Um, but, you know, just in terms of uh, uh, vote counting, vote auditing, you know, you, you're gonna have, certainly going to have a database techno- technology in order to... Uh, you know, nail down vote counts and right. and conduct um, uh, canvases and uh, recounts if necessary, which seems to happen all the time in states like Florida. <laughs> so, and I and it's sort of it's it's sort of ironic. You know, we 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 show this this famous picture of this this guy in California looking at it at the notorious hanging Chad, but of course. The, the upside there was that at least they did have a paper trail back then. And, you know, a, right. after after the Florida debacle in the twenty uh, the 2000 election, we went whole hog into touchscreen technology and all of the things that you mentioned that the white-head hackers have shown are wide open, exposed on the Internet. You can go in and change vote totals. Uh, you know, the, the people at the University of Michigan have demonstrated this several times. I think we included a link to it. Mm-hmm. So you got you get to kind of have to find the right mix of you know creating a paper trail and then and then securing the stuff in databases where, you know, you can verify the vote. And of course, the goal here is that we have uh, insured. You know, we have. Uh, the integrity of the elections is 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 ensured, and ultimately, we uh, we have faith in our democracy and the way we we uh, run elections in this country. So, well, let's hope that's true. I mean, you've, it's been at least two decades or more, and the awareness of the problem pops up every you know, four years, if not every two years with the election, the way the election cycles are staggered for representatives. Um, and it still hasn't been solved. Uh, you almost kind of wonder if there are some people who don't want it solved. Yeah. And then you add the complexity of uh, social distancing and people not being able to get out to vote. And of course, the largest voting block are the elderly. So add all of that to the mix and you've got... Uh, a pretty big problem in what five six months to solve it. So that's the challenge, and uh, that's that's what we try to explore in this package. Well, thanks for coming along, George. It's good talking to you again. All right, same here, Brian. Take care. The process of voting has always been imperfect, and perhaps it always will be. But using that as an excuse to be jaded about it serves no one. 
Democracy is not something you can perfect. It's something you have to keep working on. And speaking of swimming the English Channel, it's time for our weekly jaunt in the Wayback Machine, which takes us back to important dates in science history. I invite you to step right this way to March 21st, 2006, when the first tweets were tweeted by Twitter founder Jack Dorsey. he just spent six years developing his idea for a status-sharing service that he originally called stat.us. Get it? Status? Yeah, I like the name Twitter better now. The first tweet was machine-generated from the at Jack account, and it read, Just setting up my Twitter, which was abbreviated to include no vowels. In 2016, Dorsey's Twitter account was suspended, apparently by mistake. When he was allowed back online, Dorsey tweeted, Just setting up my Twitter, again. As social media has become a part of everyday life around the world, Twitter has grown to over 330 million monthly active users. On March 22nd in 1993, the first Intel Pentium processor was shipped, four years after design work had begun. Pentium comes from the Greek word pent, meaning five, referring to Intel's fifth-generation microarchitecture, the P5. Prior to that, the company's microprocessors had names such as the 80386 and the 80486. Those long numerical designations just weren't consistent with the nice fuzzy feeling that Intel was trying to create with the fabulously successful Intel Inside campaign it had begun in 1991. Those first Pentium chips used 3.1 million transistors and had 4 gigabytes of addressable memory. The brand became so well known that Weird Al Yankovic recorded a parody of Puff Daddy's It's All About the Benjamins called It's All About the Pentiums. On March 28, 1979, a coolant leak at Three Mile Island's Unit 2 nuclear reactor in Pennsylvania led to the worst accident in U.S. commercial nuclear power plant history. The plant's operators weren't able to diagnose the problem at first because of confusing control room indicators in the power plant's user interface. There's never a good time for a nuclear meltdown, as the saying goes, but this one was particularly ill-timed. Just two weeks prior to the accident, the film The China Syndrome had opened. It depicted a cover-up of safety hazards at a nuclear power plant. The industry claimed there were no deaths, injuries, or adverse health effects from the accident, although reports claimed higher incidents of cancer and infant mortality nearby. Unit 2 was shut down after the leak, and the plan to close and decommission the plant over the next 60 years began only in September of 2019. This week's Wayback Machine segment was researched and written by Jessica McNeil, who works with our sister publication, EDN. Jessica writes many of the EDN Moments articles that cover great moments in technology history. So that's your weekly briefing for the week ending April 3rd. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next Friday with a new episode. The weekly briefing is available on all your favorite podcast apps, but if you get there via our website at eetimes.com, you click on the navbar button that says radio. If you pop into the website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we refer to. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. <laughs>